Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And as we begin here, I would like to take just a moment and go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he bless our time together in his word. So pray with me. Father, I come to you and I ask that in these moments you sharpen us. Draw us close to your heart, Father. Remind us of the beauty of the gospel. The fact that Jesus would come to this earth, live the perfect life that I was supposed to live, and die the death that I deserve to die. But give me victory over that death with his resurrection. Father, there is nothing like it. And now, Father, as we open your word and as we look at what it means for us to live a life that is new, a new lifestyle, Father, I pray that you will help us to understand what that means. Father, thank you for the purity of our worship that is lifted up to you. And Father, I pray that it has been a sweet-smelling, fragrant to you. Lord, I pray that in these moments now you will draw us close through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to read our passage here in just a moment, but uh, before we do, let me, let me start off a little bit of an introduction here in, in this way. Um, there's a lot of reasons that people give for, for saying that they, they don't want to come to, to church. I'm talking about unchurched people. There's a lot of reasons that they give saying, yeah, I don't want to go for this reason or that reason. And, and honestly, um, one of the reasons that I've heard the most has just very simply been that People don't want to come to church because all they see in the church is hypocrites. Um, they see people who live any old way they want to through, during the week, but then on Sunday they, they go to church and they say that they're Christians and, and they say that their life is different. Uh, the day that I turned 16, I went to work in the grocery store in my hometown. and um, It wasn't a big grocery store. It was fairly small. I was a grocery stocker. One of the supervisors there had one of the nastiest mouths that you would ever, ever here. I mean, it would be nothing for him to just curse a blue streak up and down an employee at the, at the drop of a hat, for, seemingly for, for nothing. And several months into working there, he and I were working together one day, and, and, um, and he told me that he takes his family to church every single Sunday, and that one of his rules for working was that he would never work on Sunday because that was his day to go to church. And I was really confused because this was a man who, by all indications, was not a Christian and was not close to God at all, but yet he's telling me that he's a deacon in his Baptist church. Something's not adding up here. I can remember there was a good friend of mine there at the grocery store that I was trying to to, to get to come to church with me. He didn't know Jesus. He'd never been involved in church in his life. And over and over again, man, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come to church with me? And one day he stopped me. He said, you know what? You want to know why I don't come to church? And he pointed at that assistant manager and he said, I don't go to church because if that's what I'm going to find at church, then I don't want to go. Now, over the years, the church, especially here in the Bible Belt, has gotten a reputation for being a place for hypocrites to come together and to feel good about themselves while they live the rest of their lives any way that they want to. Last week we talked about how a Christian has been saved to live a new life with a new lifestyle, with, with a, and they walk a new way, they think a new way, they are a new person. And this isn't just on Sunday that this happens, but it happens all throughout the week. That's the, that's the, the goal of, of being a Christian is that our entire lives are changed. 
Coming to church on Sunday is not an opportunity to put on your best clothes and your best face and then live any way you want to the rest of the week. If people outside the church are going to see anything appealing about the inside of the church, they will only do so when the people inside the church are not hypocrites outside the church. Are you genuine with your faith outside the church? If you are, that's going to make the inside of the church a whole lot more inviting and appealing to a bunch of people who are hurting and who need Jesus. That's what Paul's going to talk about today as we get to Ephesians chapter 4, specifically verses 25 through 30. He's going to show us that we as Christians are to live both inside and outside the church consistently. He's going to give us practical advice for a transformed life. Your, your life has been transformed by the gospel. Here's practical advice for, for living that out. Okay, so let's start in Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 25 through 30. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his, with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." All right, so let's look at this practical advice that Paul gives for a life that is transformed by the gospel. Jesus has drastically impacted this life. This individual person has realized their need for a Savior. They've, they've repented of their sin. They've given their life to Jesus. That's the transformed life. We are being transformed all throughout our life, okay? Let me start there. You're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. But our lives should be transformed to look more like Jesus, all right, so here's some practical advice. First of all, put off the urge to lie. That's what we find right here. Put off the urge to lie. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, notice there um, in the header, I did not say put off lying. I said put off the urge to lie. You say, well, what's the difference? And here's the difference. Lying never starts with the action of lying. It always starts with a deeper heart issue. When there is the urge to lie, we are fighting deeper sin. And it could be pride, it could be greed, it could be something else. But lying is simply the action of a deeper sin issue. If you feel the urge to lie, then there's something that's going on with your heart, with the core of who you are that is not pleasing to God. That's what Paul he calls, he calls falsehood right here in this verse. If you feel the urge to lie, then there's something that's going on with your heart that is not pleasing to God. He says, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And this is how we live in this new life that we've been given. It's highly practical. If you want to live like a Christian, then put off the urge to lie. Reject lying, speak the truth, and when you do, you are walking in the spirit. When you lie, you hurt people. 
When you lie to another Christian, you are hurting a part of the body that you are a part of. Therefore, you are hurting yourself. You, as a Christian, are a part of the body of Christ. You lie to another Christian, you're hurting another part of the body. And therefore, you yourself are hurt. Lying brings dishonor to the church. It brings dishonor to Jesus himself. So practical advice, number one, put off the urge to lie. Whatever is that deep sin issue that you've got that makes you want to lie, put it away. Don't even get to the point where you're tempted to lie. Number two, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry, but do not sin. Uh, Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, there's two types of anger, all right? There is sinful anger and there is righteous anger. Sinful anger is the anger that comes from a heart that is selfish. If you get cut off in traffic, now I'm, I'm speaking, I'm speaking about Kivit here, okay? Kivit gets cut off in traffic, all right? And Kivit gets angry because that person took the spot that I thought that I was entitled to. How many of you have been there before? Be honest. That person took the spot that I thought I was entitled to. It's a selfish, angry. It's a, it's a sinful anger. If your anger tramples over another person, then your anger is sinful. If your anger is abusive in any way to another person who is not as strong as you are, and I'm not just talking about physical strength, I'm talking about maybe social status, even emotional health, all of those things. If your anger is abusive in any way to another person who's not as strong as you are, then your, sin, your anger is sinful. Sinful anger is an overwhelming, selfish emotion that tries to build yourself up and tear other people down. That's sinful anger. But there's some, there is such thing as a righteous anger. For example, when you see someone being abused by a, by a person who's in authority or, or who is physically stronger, then righteous anger is understandable. When your anger stems from a heart that sees hurt and injustice done to other people, then it is righteous anger. When you see things that defy the will and the character of God, then that should make you angry. Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus got angry because the Pharisees opposed any kind of healing on the Sabbath day. They were more worried about following the rules that they had actually made up than about seeing a person cared for and taken care of. You move on a little bit later in in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus gets angry with the disciples. Why? Because they kept the children away. All the children are not as important as these adults are. The adults are the ones who need to be talking to Jesus. Children go away. And Jesus gets angry. No, let them come to me, Jesus says. We know the story about Jesus being angry in the temple when the money changers are dishonoring the temple. The transformed Christian knows the difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. And they also know how to use the righteous anger. Let's continue reading here. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't stay angry. Verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't let your righteous anger lead you to doing something sinful. And really, that can happen if you stay angry for a long time or if you let your anger get the best of you. He says, be angry, but do not sin. Be angry in a righteous way. 
Third practical advice is this. He says, steal no more. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but, let, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Story is told of, um, of Winston Churchill when he was vice, excuse me, not vice, he was, he was prime minister of Great Britain. And he was hosting this massive party with, with, uh, with dignitaries from all over the world who were there. And, and at, once, at one point in this meal, he's, he's taken aside by the head butler. And the head butler um, tells him that lady so-and-so had been observed stealing a silver salt shaker. That's like a tongue twister, stealing a silver salt shaker. Anyway, keep going. Uh, anyway, she stole this thing and, and she placed it in her purse. And so the butler said, well, how do you, how do you suggest that this matter be handled? And, and Winston Churchill said, leave it to me. I'll, I'll take care of it. The prime minister then made his way across the room, and he paused at the table to pick up the matching pepper shaker from the dinner table. He stepped up to the lady, and he, he grabbed her by the elbow and gently walked her off away from other people where they couldn't hear what he had to say. He pulled the pepper shaker out of his pocket, and he showed it to the woman, and he said, my dear lady, he says this in a really guilty-sounding voice. He says, my dear lady, I think we've been seen. Perhaps we better both put them back. He handled it in a really graceful way there, didn't he? Can you imagine being that lady? Winston Churchill just accused you of lying, and, or excuse me, of stealing. Throughout the Bible, we see stealing condemned multiple times. Stealing is dishonoring to God because it says that his provision is not enough and that you have to take your own fate into your own hands to alter your future. God, your provision is not enough for me, so I'm going to take it all into my own hands so I can take care of my future. It completely disregards the hard work of other people, and it does not take them into consideration. Stealing is the selfish thought that, that other people don't matter as much as I matter. So I'm just going to help myself to what rightfully belongs to somebody else. Now, stealing is not just shoplifting. Stealing is not robbing a bank. It's not only robbing a bank. It's, it's not just picking somebody else's pocket. Um, not including all of your income on your taxes is stealing. Not returning something that's borrowed is stealing. Not returning the difference when somebody at the, at the cash register gives you too much change, that's stealing. And Paul doesn't just stop here and say, steal no more. He, he gives further instruction for the Christian to labor, do honest work with your own hands. Why? So you can live a life of generosity, sharing with other people who can't care for themselves. Instead of stealing, you go share what you have earned with other people, thereby taking away their need to feel that, that, that they may feel to, to steal. That's what radical Christianity looks like. Can you imagine a seasoned thief, somebody who's been stealing their entire lives, comes to know Jesus, but now instead of stealing, now they are generously giving out of their resources to other people. That's one of the ways that the world knows that you're a Christian. When your life is transformed in that way, you are different. That's what Paul's trying to tell the church here. Number four, stay away from evil conversation. Stay away from evil conversation. I think um, the greatest episode of the Three Stooges, all right, is the episode Disorder in the Court. 
And in that episode, Curly is called to the witness stand, and he's about to be sworn in, and the bailiff tells him to place his hand on the Bible and raise his right hand. And, and you know, it's Curly, so he can't even do that right, okay? But the bailiff gets really frustrated, and, and, he's, and, he, and he finally gets to the point where he says, do you swear to tell? But before he can say anything else, he just says, do you swear? And Curly goes, no, but I know all the words. Well, Paul says here, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But he's talking about a deeper heart issue here. Something else is going on inside that would even bring it out. But what is corrupting talk? If you were to read the, um, the, the Greek, you would see that what Paul's talking about here is, is don't let any rotten words come out of your mouth. Don't let any rotten words come out of your mouth. And rotten words are not just four-letter words, although that's a part of what Paul's talking about here. Rotten words are any words that do not have purpose, meaning, and the ability to build up rather than tear down. When you gossip, no matter the severity of the gossip, you think, oh, this is real small. You're using rotten words. When you tell nasty jokes that tear any person down or any group of people down, you are using rotten words. Rotten words are corrupt, and they spread corruption. So it's not just you that are corru- is corrupt. It, it, it's, it, it spreads around all of a sudden. Paul's saying, don't let rotten words come out of your mouth. On the flip side of that, he gives instruction about what kind of words do come out of our mouths. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Not rotten words, words that build up. Words that are appropriate for whatever occasion you find yourselves in. Words that bless other people. Those are the words that the Christian should use. How can a mature Christian curse other people or use any kind of rotten talk and then with the very same mouth praise God? Either your old self is ruling your life or your new self is ruling your life. And I'll say this too. Showing the fruit of the Spirit is not merely the absence of cursing or gossiping. The fruit of the Spirit is seen when you use words that are full of love and full of peace and full of encouragement. Can I tell you that some of you grumps need to quit worrying so much about using foul language and just just speak an encouraging word? When you're passing by some, sometime, say, hey, how you doing? Hey, I love you. I'm thankful for you. That's the kind of language that Paul's talking about using here. It's not just don't use the bad words. No, it's use the good words, the words that build up rather than tear down. And then here's the fifth piece of practical advice for the Christian, and that is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Right here in the middle of these practical uh, statements kind of comes an instruction that almost seems a little bit strange, a little bit like it's not really a part of all the others in some ways. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. All right, so I get don't lie, don't steal, don't be angry in sinful ways, but what's the deal with this one? Paul is talking to Christians here, and he lets them know that when they were saved, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. The day of redemption is the day in which we are ultimately redeemed to the presence of God for all eternity. It's the day that you either die or the day that Jesus calls the church home to be with him. We are sealed for that day. 
God has placed his stamp of, of approval, of sealing on us. We will make it to that day, and we will one day be in the presence of God. That's what he's saying right here. Okay? But the commandment is, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit grieved? And I've got three ways that I believe the Holy Spirit is grieved. Okay? Number one, by the unrepentant sinner. By the unrepentant sinner. God uses the Holy Spirit to draw people into a relationship with him. If you've ever heard the good news about Jesus and there's a, there's a pumping in your chest prompting you to respond to what you have heard, then that is the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. When the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, do not harden your hearts. The Holy Spirit is grieved when the unrepentant turns their back on God and says, God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is grieved by a dead church, by a dead church. It is absolutely possible for the Holy Spirit to indwell believers but turn his back on a local church because of their hard-heartedness and rebellion to his leading. The body of Christ is supposed to be a place of spiritual life. With people coming to know Jesus and being baptized, and when the people of the church don't obey God in what he wants to and who they wants in who he wants them to be, then he will turn his back on that church. In order for there to be life in a church, the Holy Spirit's got to be present. There's no other way for there to be true life. W.A. Criswell um, was writing about this one time, and he has this to say. People say to me, Pastor, why are you trying to enlarge the church? Why do you try to reach other people? Is not the church large enough? As long as there is one who is lost, we are still down on our knees asking God for help, methods, and approaches to reach him. As long as there is someone lost on the mission field, we have a tremendous assignment. We are still praying. We are still hoping. We are still interceding. We are still asking God for help. We are still knocking at the door. The task is never finished. It will never be finished until Jesus comes again. If we had 40,000 people registered in Sunday school every Sunday and there were still families and children outside the reach of the Word of God, we would still be at it, trying to reach more. Such a church is a church full of love, intercession, and the Spirit of Christ. When we get away from that, we become dead in our hearts and we grieve the Holy Spirit. It is entirely possible for Salem Baptist Church to have people inside of it who are indwelt by and sealed by the Holy Spirit, but because they as a collective group are not following Jesus, for the Holy Spirit to say, I can't help you until you're broken. I can't lead you. I can't do a mighty work in you until you're completely broken. All throughout the book of Ephesians, we're talking about this new life that God has given us. We make sure that we're not a dead church by living in that new life. We stay, make sure we're not a dead church by following God and being open to new methods and new ways of reaching people. And above all, we beg God to save people through us. That's how we avoid being a dead church. That's how we avoid grieving the Holy Spirit. 
Then the third way that the Holy Spirit is grieved is by the ignoring believer, the individual believer, by the ignoring believer. How many times has the Holy Spirit prompted you to do something and you ignored him? Or the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and you ignore him. And maybe it's talking to someone about Jesus. He gives you an opportunity. He prompts you to do it. You just don't do it. Or maybe in this, it's a physical expression of worship right here in our worship service, like raising hands or, or simply closing your eyes in prayer or kneeling before the sovereignty of God. But no matter what it is, you ignore the Holy Spirit and it grieves him. If you habitually ignore the Holy Spirit, there's going to come a time in which the Holy Spirit stops working in you and stops working through you. Why would he work in you and through you if you don't care what he has to say? He's not going to force himself on you. One of the greatest tragedies in this world is a Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit, that resurrection power that we've been talking about here in Ephesians, one of the greatest tragedies known to mankind. Now, I want to, I want to close with, with this thought and kind of wrap all of this up for us, okay? I believe that God wants to do great things ahead in bringing people into a relationship with him, both for you as an individual for me as an individual, but for us as a church, I believe that. I believe Salem is going to see God work in all inspiring ways in the days ahead. But listen to me. If God's people are not living like God's people, then we are hypocrites. We say we believe in holiness, but we live in any way we want to. When you have a genuinely transformed life, that is when God is most able to work. At the beginning of the sermon, I shared with you about a guy that I worked with in the grocery store, the one who said that he was a Christian but lived. You, you couldn't tell in any way that he was a Christian from the way he lived. I mentioned the other guy, the friend of mine, who pointed at him and said, if that's what I'm going to find at church, then I don't want to go. This friend of mine was so turned off by the supervisor that he wanted nothing to do with church, but only for a while. I'll never forget when he made that comment, I made the decision that I was going to do everything I could to show him that a Christian can be legit. And y'all, I'm not putting myself on a pedestal here. I'm just saying I was so broken by the fact that that was what he saw, that I said, I'm going to do something about this. And listen, I wasn't perfect. I didn't try to be perfect. I was just real and I was genuine with the guy about what Jesus had done in my life. And after a while, that guy decided he wanted to come to youth group with me. And it wasn't long after that that he got saved. I think that more than anything else, Paul is trying to tell the believers right here in Ephesus to just be real Christians. Get rid of the old way of living. Adapt a new lifestyle and just watch the way with this brand new lifestyle, with this radical lifestyle, with the fact that you are different. Watch the way people are drawn to Jesus because of that. Some of you are here this morning and maybe you have been one of those that's living one way on Sunday morning when you pick up your Bible, dust the, you get the dust off of it, put on your nice clothes and come into this place. Then when you get home, you put your Bible down and you don't touch it again all week and you don't think about church anymore until you show up again. 
maybe for some of you, there's never even been a time in which you identified yourself as a Christian. And you made the decision to follow Jesus. You repented of your sin, but you never followed him in believer's baptism. You know, believer's baptism is the first act of obedience after salvation. And it's that way that we publicly tell the world, I am a Christian. You've never done that. If that's you, then you can be baptized on Easter Sunday. I told you about this last week, but on Easter Sunday, you can be baptized. Let me know about it. I want to I talk with you about that. Some of you have never gone from the old into the new. And there's no reason for you to even think about this idea of a hypocrite because you've never accepted Jesus. You just are who you are. You're lost. And you're not in a relationship with Jesus. If that's you, I want to talk with you about it, what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Church, let's just be real. Let's be genuine. We're not perfect, but we're striving for holiness. We're striving to live up to this transformed identity that we've been given as Christians. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we affirm the fact that we don't always get it right. Father, we do have that urge to lie. Sometimes we even lie. That Father, we are um, way too often guilty of the sinful anger. That Father, we even grieve the Holy Spirit. But Father, we just humbly ask for help. We need you. We are nothing without you. Father, break us down. Help us to know without a doubt that we need Jesus more than anything else. Father, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.